This is America on the Road, winner of the International Automotive Media Conference Gold Medal Award for Radio and now in its 25th year on the air. Thanks for being with us as we bring you the latest automotive information from around the world. We have some very interesting car introductions to tell you about this week, and Tesla has revealed that it is delaying the launch of one of its upcoming vehicles. We'll tell you why. America on the Road is brought to you by Mercury Insurance and DrivingToday.com. If you're looking to save some money, you should switch to Mercury for your auto and home insurance. California save an average of $670 with Mercury, so imagine how much you could save. Get a quote today at mercuryinsurance.com. Hi, I'm Jack Red. With me is co-host Chris Teague. Chris is based in Maine. I am based in Southern California. Chris has some jets flying over his house as we record this today. Uh, we travel extensively driving and evaluating all the new cars, all the new vehicles, so we consider that a privilege and an honor. I just got back from Austin, Texas uh, last night uh, from driving. How are things in Maine, Chris, and how are the jets flying over? They're actually quite cool. You know, it's hard not to feel patriotic when you see the, the Blue Angels fly over, especially when they're practicing right above uh, my house for the air show that's happening this weekend here in Maine. But uh, great weather. We've been out uh, enjoying, you know, low 70s, so uh, summer is almost over here. I think we're going to start cooling off, and I love it. Do you have leaves falling in your yard? I have them falling in my yard here in Southern California. I'm kind of weirded out by it. <laughs> it's a never-ending battle here. Our new house is covered in trees, which is great, but it's a bit—it's a lot of work. Yeah, absolutely. Well, this is not about that. This is about cars. Our special guest this week is Mike Olmeyer. He is the project engineer on the just-launched Wagoneer and Grand Wagoneer. People keep calling these Jeeps, but they're not precisely Jeeps, but uh, we will have him talking about that. And in the road test segment, Chris, you have a very interesting vehicle to talk about this week. Tell us what it is. I've got the 2021 Ford Mustang Mach-E. Well, that is very, very cool, and we'll see how it fares in the, uh, in the infrastructure of Maine, uh, because you have commented before that uh, an electric vehicle is a little tough sell up there. They are, and uh, I have a lot to say about that. All right. Well, we will wait for that. I will give my review of the 2022 Subaru, Subaru Outback Wilderness. Uh, it's a new submodel of the Outback, and it is the most off-road capable of the Outback models. I, I used it to drive back from a baseball. I guess I drove it to and back from a baseball game. My baseball season has just ended, so uh, I had that going for me. I think a new one will start up in the fall. That's the beauty of living in Southern California. You can play baseball year-round, and you can drive cars year-round. So when we come back, uh, we will be telling you about automotive news, including what's going on at Tesla. Jeez, there's always something, isn't there? Uh, so stay with us for that right here on America on the Road. Welcome back, everybody, to America on the Road with Christine Jackney Red back with you. And it is news time and what news we have today. Of course, uh, Tesla is always making news, but uh, this time around they're making news for a reason we've heard before. They're <laughs> delaying a vehicle. And Chris, you remember the first generation Tesla Roadster, don't you? I do. It was uh, pretty impressive. I've only seen a couple of them in real life, but yeah, very impressive. One used to live, quote unquote, down the street from us. And of course, it was based on a, on a Lotus and uh, had Lotus lines and all that kind of stuff. And I would see it all the time and then it's disappeared. I don't know whether the owner sold it or uh, what happened. Maybe he moved. I never really got close to the guy. But uh, what's happening with the next generation Roadster is, uh, well, it's not coming as soon as maybe we'd like. Elon Musk has announced that uh, the industry-wide supply chain 
has uh, run a, they've run afoul of uh, Tesla and vice versa, and that's pre preventing them from uh, putting together the Roadster's launch. It sounds like a nice cover story to me. What do you think, Chris? I think so too. And you know, his statement was, I guess I say statement, but his tweet uh, was was pretty interesting, saying that it'll come in 2023, but only if 2022 doesn't end up turning into a, a mega drama. I think were his words, which, uh, given the way things are going, that's a pretty big if, don't you think? Absolutely, and I think there's probably mega drama going on at Tesla. They have the Cybertruck to introduce. Uh, we at North American Car of the Year jury have invited Tesla to participate. Uh, in our Truck of the Year competition, and so far uh, we've heard crickets. Not even crickets from uh, from Tesla. Uh, maybe Elon can listen to this uh, broadcast and then call us or send me an email and let us know that Cybertruck will be participating in North American Car of the Year. We'd love to have that happen, but uh, I think there's a lot going on at Tesla, and there's uh, a lot more competition coming into the market now, isn't there? Yes, and given the Cybertruck's uh, now delay that we learned today, it'll be coming in late 22 at the 2022 at the earliest. That puts it uh, well behind Rivian, right head-to-head -head with the Ford F-150 Lightning, uh, probably two GM electric trucks, uh, General Motors at that point in time. So uh, pretty heavy competition for a truck that looks like an outlier, at least visually, uh, you know, for, uh, to the others. Yeah, absolutely. It will be fascinating this year's North American Car of the Year would, and, and Truck of the Year. Well, it will be fascinating because we're seeing so many uh, newcomers to the industry as possible participants. You mentioned Rivian, and of course, Tesla isn't exactly a newcomer, but they don't seem to want to participate so much in uh, those Car of the Year competitions. Uh, haven't done done so much in the past. I think we might see a, a vehicle from Karma as well. So uh, a lot of new stuff going to show up. We'll see how that all pans out. Well, here's something new. Uh, it is the uh, a yet another <laughs> high-performance uh, Lexus RC. This is the RCF. Um, it's the 22 model year, and it uses a 5-liter V8. Lexus has just uh, given us details about it. 472 horsepower. You know, Chris, I remember when 472 horsepower seemed like a mind-boggling amount of horsepower. These days, it doesn't seem all that powerful, does it? It doesn't. And, you know, you get into the Lexus RCF, it feels like a big car and, and 472. I mean, it still moves, but uh, man, with the competition moving so quickly, it's it's hard to get excited about that number anymore. And I hate to say that. Yeah. Well, and I know you love Lexus products, too. This is a an, uh, the official name of this uh, iteration is the RCF Fuji Speedway Edition. I was lucky enough to go up to Fuji Speedway uh, once upon a time, and it is really a, a fascinating place to go. It is in the foothills of Mount Fuji, and you go up in this very forested uh, area, and then here's a racetrack. <laughs> and uh, what I had to wonder was how people get there to, to uh, see races, and then how do they get out of there? Uh, that's what really was mind-boggling to me, but it is a fascinating place. Um, this is also a fascinating vehicle, uh, they do a lot of light weighting in this. They have Brembo brakes, uh, an adaptive variable suspension. Uh, they've changed the, the tire spec. Uh, so this will be a hot car. I, uh, there's nobody <laughs> is going to say that this won't be cool. But um, in this era of, well, in some electric vehicles, some electric uh, supercars these days, we're seeing a thousand horsepower. So um, fewer than 500 uh, 
just doesn't blow you away the way it used to. No, it doesn't. Uh, but it is a sharp looking car. So uh, I would like to drive it before I levy a, a judgment on it. But, uh, you know, power is power. So numbers numbers do matter. Yeah. Well, it will be a cool car, certainly. And uh, we're not levying judgment so much. It's just pointing out what to expect and what not to expect. And here's, here's a wild one. Uh, it is the Audi Grand Sphere. And Audi uh, doesn't use a capital letter on Grand Sphere. I'm not sure why. <laughs> I guess it's from their Quattro days. They, uh, I guess they, uh, maybe they ration capital letters there in Ingolstadt. I'm not sure, but uh, this is a concept car that they've introduced, and it's kind of a, a next level concept car in that it's not about the driving experience. It's really about the riding along in it experience. It's a an automated vehicle. Uh, you've written about this, Chris. Why don't you tell us a bit about it? Sure. So Audi, uh, this is a, the second in a series of these uh, sphere concepts that they're releasing. The first hit at Pebble Beach. Uh, I think that one was called Sky Sphere. But this one, uh, you know, the level four autonomous driving is what they're saying that these concept cars uh, carry. So it means the driver uh, can let the car take over in, in most situations or many situations, I should, should say. Uh, but inside this thing is, is really neat. So it, you they're saying you get in the car and there's no there are no screens there are no displays, uh, nothing to indicate that there are any there's any technology in this car at all except for when you turn it on, uh, there's a projection on the dash and it has wood grain dash and everything else. Uh, so when the driver is driving, the projections look like a normal gauge cluster and an infotainment screen. But when the driver is hands off, uh, they say that you can watch movies or play games or uh, even have a video conference in the car because you don't have to pay attention to the road at that point in time. But uh, some really neat tech and they're also saying that uh, I. I think this car will have well over, I mean, it's a concept car, obviously, but they're saying well over 400 miles of range uh, with really fast charging that is similar to filling up your car, a traditional gas car at a gas station. So that was really the exciting thing to me because we always talk about charging times, but uh, being able to hit, I think, 85% in under 20 minutes, that's still longer than a, a stop at a gas station, but it's a, long, a lot faster than a lot of cars can pull off these days. Yeah, well, I'm glad you pointed that out because it's kind of like going to a gas station, but it's really not like going to a gas station. I, I'm typically filling up uh, any vehicle's tank in five minutes or less, and then off I go, as opposed to 25 minutes. I And that extra 20 minutes kind of means something to me. So, uh, But in this vehicle, I think you really don't care if you're going anywhere. This, this is what I found most fascinating uh, about the vehicle, is how Audi described it. And they said it, it goes from being an automobile to an experience device. You know, you're just experiencing something. <laughs> I'm not sure what. You're not necessarily experiencing transportation uh, until you get there. It, it's kind of, I think what they're trying to pull off is being like in the, the front of a uh, luxury airplane, right? The, the first cabin or a, a private airplane where um, the trip is kind of incidental to everything else that's happening because it's, it's so cool there. What's your take on that? Well, it's hard to imagine. So first of all, yes, I could see that being a, a thing, but it's hard to imagine getting in a car for the morning commute and wanting it. I mean, having an experience on the way to work or for those of us that still commute. I, I mean, I, it's just hard for me to wrap my head around that. They did say that this car, this specific concept is special, quote unquote, because it will uh, a lot of the concepts, I keep using that word, but a lot of the, the features in this car will make their way into a production car at some point in time. So it's going to be interesting to see what they pick and choose from this concept to actually slap into a production car. Uh, I mean, autonomous driving is coming whether we like it or not, but uh, the experience thing, uh, you know, 
I'll have to wait and see how that makes it into production. Yeah, I mean, you say autonomous driving is coming, and I suppose it is, but I'm not sure it's coming in my lifetime, to tell you the truth. I think there are many, many hurdles to autonomous driving, at least fully autonomous driving, and that's not even level four, but that's level five autonomous driving. So uh, we'll see when that happens. I haven't been in a car that uh, can 100% drive itself yet, and uh, I think that's some ways off, and certainly with weather and all those challenges, it will be maybe even more difficult to make that happen, but uh, we will talk about that um, another time, because when we come back, it will be road test time right here on America on the Road. So stay with us for that with Chris Teague. This is Jack Red with you, and we're so happy you're with us right here on America on the Road. Welcome back, everybody, to America on the Road with Chris Teague. Jack Red back with you for road test time. Boy, we love to road test cars. I just got back from Austin, Texas, driving uh, some pretty cool cars down there. Chris is all over the place driving cars. And, of course, just lighting up the roads in Maine uh, as he drives with his uh, two children in tow uh, behind him, uh, road testing vehicles. So we have very interesting vehicles, I think, this time around. And, Chris, you have an all-electric for us, don't you? Tell us about it. You're right, Jack. I was testing the 2021 Mustang, Ford Mustang Mach-E, and it was very exciting because, as you know, I complain about the infrastructure here in Maine, of charging infrastructure quite a bit. And uh, so it's very rare that I get to test these vehicles, but uh, I was very excited to see this one show up. This was the uh, premium trim, which is one step up from the the base select trim. Uh, and it was the extended range E all-wheel drive. So they offer a few different powertrains here. You can get it with rear wheel drive and a standard range battery, um, all wheel drive with a standard range battery, and then extended range with both all wheel drive and rear wheel drive. So uh, this one had about 270 miles of range. Uh, it says Ford says it'll do zero to 60 in 4.8 seconds, which is faster than I think uh, anybody with kids such as myself in tow would need to go. But uh, 346 horsepower, 428 pound-feet of torque. And the one thing that really surprised me about this vehicle, uh, even compared to something like the Chevy Bolt or the uh, Hyundai Ioniq 5, which we haven't driven yet, but you and I both saw when we were in California at the beginning of August, is how normal and how just car-like the Mustang Mach-E looks and feels compared to something like the Ioniq 5 or even a Tesla, which feels really futuristic. Have you driven the Mach-E, Jack? I did. I drove it at launch and I, I had one at home for a week and I found it fascinating. And I think it's kind of a double-edged sword in some ways that it doesn't look different. And I think mostly it's good because we want to mainstream these vehicles. We don't want them to be the, you know, the oddballs, the, uh, you know, sore thumbs sticking out uh, on the road. We want everybody to feel that they're they're part of the fabric of, of cardom out there. At the same time, I don't know if it's quite special enough, but I guess you could say that about the Audi electric vehicles and uh, a bunch of other electric vehicles too, uh, the uh, Volkswagen ID4, for example. I agree, but I think at least for me, and I think a lot of people who are buying these things, uh, so first of all, I should say it, it, it's special enough to draw attention on the road. People really do, you know, kind of crane the neck to see what's going on. And part of it is some of the lighting features. It has these really neat uh, uh, animations when you turn on the turn signals and things that very Mustangy nostalgia uh, drawing things. But uh, Inside, uh, I think, is the really the big, big story for me was the inside. So the interior is extremely comfortable in this thing. Uh, the seats are they're not leather. They are synthetic leather seats, but they're well padded. They're deep. Uh, there's plenty of room in the back seats for the kids. 
They love the panoramic sunroof, although it doesn't open. And I will say that that's a little irritating uh, that there's no shade as well. Uh, you know, I mentioned things are cooling down here in Maine, but the sun still comes through that thing like a magnifying glass and it does get warm. Uh, but plenty of space for kids. Uh, there's up to 29.7 cubic feet of behind the rear seat uh, of cargo space, 59.7 behind both seats with the seats folded down. So uh, enough room to haul some gear and people around. Uh, there's a 15.5 inch vertically oriented touchscreen up front, which I really enjoyed because you know, Jack, I'm a huge tech nerd. So uh, you can run Apple CarPlay and Android Auto while also having your climate controls and everything there. It's just a really neat setup. Ford Sync 4, uh, Ford Sync in general, I think is a great infotainment system. Ford uh, Sync 4 is just a step forward for that. So uh, really good job on that. The, the car has plenty of safety features. It's got uh, active park assist. Uh, Blue Cruise, which will eventually be Ford's uh, autonomous, semi-autonomous cruise control feature. Uh, reverse sensing, uh, blind spot monitoring, cross traffic alerts, all that stuff. Uh, and in driving, you know, as I said, it feels like a normal car, looks like a normal car, and it almost drives like a normal car. Uh, so you end up with a little bit of difference in the way it, it goes over bumps and the way it handles speed bumps and things like that because the batteries are so heavy and so low in the vehicle. It's a little crashy. You feel the bumps a little bit harder. But by and large, it rides very smoothly on the highway. It's pretty quiet. There's some wind noise and tire noise because, you know, you don't have... Uh, the powertrain kind of droning away in the background. But, uh, you know, I think that it feels pretty quick. I think if you, you get into a Model S or a Model 3 performance, you're going to see the difference. Uh, those are a little bit sprightlier, if that's a word. Uh, but this plenty of quick for, for anybody to drive on a normal basis. And I think if you really wanted more speed, you could go for the Mach-E GT. And uh, I really wanted to get your opinion on this jacket, you know, with speed and an EV. Is that important to you or is it just kind of a, a side effect or a side benefit or maybe whipped cream on the top of having uh, not to pay for gas? Well, you don't pay for gas, but you do pay for electricity, and, and somebody's paying somewhere, uh, and you're paying a lot more <laughs> for an electric vehicle, typically, than you're paying for a gasoline vehicle. So there there are trade-offs. I love electric vehicles. I love the way they drive. I think they're really cool, and I, I love the Mach-E. I really did enjoy driving it. Uh, you point out exactly what I experienced. Is that those batteries low in the body make it feel a little different, not necessarily bad, but a little different uh, than the typical performance car. Um, but that's okay. It is different. And uh, the, that instant torque, a, a lot of uh, things that it brings to the party, uh, silent operation or darn near silent operation. There's just a tunnel uh, to like about the Maki. I wish I saw more of them out here in Southern California. I live in the hotbed of uh, electric cars. They're just all around me here. And I don't see any Maki's. And I don't know whether it's a supply issue or people just are not gravitating to that car as they do to the Tesla and the, even the Audis and, and some of the others. It's it, weird to me in a way. Yeah, who can say, but the exact opposite of your experience, I don't live in the hotbed of EVs. And so, you know, to the infrastructure point that I continue to make on the show and elsewhere, uh, I live in a college town. Uh, there are granted only about 20,000 people in my metro area, if you could even call it that, between the two towns, kind of twin towns that I live in. Uh, there are like three chargers that I can access. And so um, it was Tuesday morning. I was due to give the car back to the fleet company and pick up a new car. And I was searching for a charger. So there's one at the, my local grocery store that was occupied. There's one at a, a local restaurant shopping center. 
it was occupied. There's, you know, one at a brewery down the street, that one was occupied. So you kind of drive around and around in circles and uh, ended up giving up and plugging it into my house, which as we know on a household outlet would take three or four days to charge completely. Um, and I didn't have the right equipment to do it on the, to plug into the 220. So uh, I think unless you're capable, if you live in a place like Maine or outside of a major metro area, I should say, uh, you're probably going to want to get a home charger. And that's really the only way that this vehicle would be viable for me. And I think a lot of other people, uh, because the charging infrastructure in rural America isn't anywhere near that of, you know, Los Angeles, or even like a smaller metro area like Charlotte uh, has, you know, a pretty good charging network around it. So I think there's some work to be done. I think everybody realizes that, but uh, it's not the Mustang Mach-E's fault because I definitely enjoyed driving it. Right. And uh, certainly you would have a home charger if you were to purchase that, or you'd be kind of have rocks in your head not to do that. Uh, <laughs> you know, if you possibly couldn't, you shouldn't buy it probably if you couldn't. So, uh, well, let me tell you all about the Subaru Outback Wilderness. It is the most off-road capable Outback in a long time, maybe ever. Uh, that's what uh, Subaru is telling us, and I have nothing that's going to uh, prove them uh, wrong about that. Uh, they have elevated the vehicle to 9.5 inches of ground clearance, so that, that helps out. It has a standard front skid plate, so you don't you know tear up the engine or oil pan as you're uh, going over rocks. It has all-terrain tires. What, what we're seeing here, Chris, and I think you've noted this too, is there seems like a there's a return to off-roading, or at least that off-road ethic out there. Uh, we've seen it from Jeep vehicles. Certainly Ford is doing it with the Bronco Sport and Bronco. Um, and now uh, Subaru is getting back in the act uh, with the wilderness version of the Outback. Of course, the Outback was a, a version of uh, a station wagon that they kind of tricked out for off-roading in the first place. So this is an off-road version of an off-road version of something in a lot of ways. Interesting. Yeah, I agree. And I think it's, I think it's neat. So, you know, you don't need uh, a tricked out Jeep Wrangler to go off-road. You don't need the best Ford Bronco to go off-road. Uh, Subaru's proving you can do it in just a little bit of a lifted station wagon, which I really, really enjoy. Uh, this sort of good enough attitude is is really, really big in the uh, sort of overlanding community. And I think that's a lot of what Subaru is pitching this vehicle to. But even just for people like myself who would like to throw the dog in the car and hit the trail on the weekend, this is a very attractive option. Absolutely. And it is not the off-roader that, say, a Bronco or a Wrangler is. That is certain. I don't think they're claiming that in any way, shape, or form. You you have to have things like a uh, two-speed transfer case and, and that kind of stuff, the, you know, locking front and rear axles, all that jazz to uh, maybe be 100% off-roady, uh, but certainly this has uh, a lot of things going for it. A revised rear differential has a different final drive ratio. It uses the continuously variable transmission uh, that many enthusiast testers detest. I'm fine with it, and for the type of driving I did over the last uh, week with this vehicle, mostly on-road because well, I live in Southern California. It's a long way to get off-road uh, if you're going to do that. So uh, it was just a swell car. It, it was fun to drive, uh, comfortable. Uh, and I liked having the things like the all-terrain tires and, you know, the, the good-looking 17-inch wheels, uh, matte black, uh, as opposed to shiny wheels. It just seems more purposeful in a way. And I think that's kind of what the Outback is all about from the from the get-go, and uh, you're an aficionado of that, aren't you, Chris? 
I absolutely am. And, you know, I, I agree that it looks it looks pretty mean. You know, I first saw it and I thought it looked a little awkward, but I've seen a few in person now. And man, it's it's pretty handsome. But, uh, you know, the you mentioned the re the retuned uh, rear axle and they've they've retuned the gearbox as well. So they say it can climb up to a 40 percent grade. And for the vast majority of people who take their cars off road, if they ever go off road, that's probably more than they're ever going to do. So um, good for Subaru on, on doing this. I'm sure they've probably already sold a bunch and they will continue to sell a bunch. I think you're right. Uh, certainly power is there. It has a 2.4 liter turbocharged boxer engine. I wonder if they're ever going to come up with a different engine configuration than, uh, than that. Uh, I guess that's their signature. So they're going to probably stick with boxer engines like forever and ever. Uh, it was a reasonable amount of power. I wouldn't say it, it blew me away with power. It doesn't also doesn't blow you away with fuel economy, but that's because this is an off-roader. It does have nice towing capacity of 3,500 pounds. So I, I think we had some interesting vehicles. You uh, kind of set the set Maine on fire uh, driving a, an electric <laughs> uh, Mustang there, the Mustang Mach-E. And uh, I got into the wilderness, at least in my head, in the Subaru Outback Wilderness. So, great vehicles. And when we come back, we will be speaking with a special guest, Mike Ullmeyer. He's the project engineer on the just-launched Wagoneer and Grand Wagoneer. So, stay with us for that. With Chris Teague, this is Jack Nerad with you, and we're so glad you're with us right here on America on the Road. Welcome back, everybody, to America on the Road. Jack Nerad back with you, and we are on location somewhere near New York City. But we're about as far away from New York City as you can get when you're only 30 or 40 miles from New York City. Uh, we are driving both the Wagoneer and Grand Wagoneer. I'm not sure whether to describe them as Jeep or not, so I'm not, I'm not going to say that. And with me is the chief engineer on, the, on both of these vehicles. Uh, Mike Olmeyer is with us. Thanks so much for being with us. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me, Jack. It's a pleasure, and thank you for joining us. It's really exciting to have a new Wagoneer after so long a new Grand Wagoneer after so long, a lot of heritage in these vehicles, a lot of reminiscences, right? And I think you're um, revealing them in a, a terrific place. I mean, I couldn't believe the number of Jeeps I saw as I was driving around here. Tell our listening audience what the Wagoneer and Grand Wagoneer are about circa this year. So they really represent our opportunity to kind of enter back into the luxury large UV segment again with the goal not just of entering the segment but really bringing the rich heritage luxury and elegance back into the segment and actually entering back into the segment as a leader and again celebrating our heritage celebrating the rebirth of an american legend and really um, bringing that opulent uh, and performance and capability back to our customers. Put these vehicles into context, will you? I mean give our listeners uh, some idea of competitive vehicles and who you're up against here. Sure. So our main competitors in the Wagoneer space, uh, typically uh, the GMC Tahoe um, and the Ford Expedition. Um, so we're pretty online with them with wheelbase capacity. Um, so that would be kind of our Wagoneer targeted competitive set. When we get into the Grand Wagoneer, we really jump to the Lincoln Navigator, um, the Cadillac uh, Escalade, probably. Cadillac Escalade, and uh, kind of the Range Rover Sport. So those are our kind of competitive vehicles when we get into the Grand Wagon. When you have uh, this opportunity to bring a vehicle that you haven't done before within the, the company, what does that allow you to do? 
Well, in this particular case, it allows us to set very high standards and very high targets for the vehicle based on our anticipated customer base. So again, some of the objectives that we set for this vehicle, you, you'll hear us talk about whisper quiet interior. You'll hear us talk about this vehicle being the largest small vehicle you'll ever drive. So when we're able to set those objectives, those high level objectives, then we turn them into engineering metrics and then we design and engineer very methodically and very disciplinary to those engineering metrics. And then this is what we end up with, which we feel is going to exceed all of the competitors that we're up against. Yeah, so you benchmark the others and you see what they do well and then you uh, can exceed them, right? Exactly. And, and you have that clean sheet of paper that enables you to do that. Exactly. You know, those vehicles are based on truck platforms, pretty obvious truck platforms. Uh, Certainly Stellantis has a great truck platform in uh, the Ram 1500 truck, yet I think your frame is a bit different than that. Tell us a bit about the thinking there and, and how you've used what you know from full-size pickup trucks but have modified it. Sure, so building upon the Ram um, dynamics, as you know, as many of you know, the, the Ram is, is fantastic from a ride and handling perspective and has received many, many accolades for that. It's one of the best riding vehicles of any type out there. It's Absolutely. really kind one of amazing. Of the best. Yeah. So starting with that um, was a fantastic opportunity for us. So we kind of morphed the frame, so to speak, to get it to the right size. It's, it's wider, it's longer. Uh, we had the opportunity to modify the frame to incorporate the all-new fully independent multi-link rear suspension, which really, you know, going away from a solid axle to a fully independent rear suspension was phenomenal. And, and as I mentioned earlier, it really allows us starting at the frame foundationally to get the vehicle occupant package optimized, the flat load floors, the low entry egress, the low lift over height, and the, and the, and the spaciousness in the cabin. So it's really uh, something that we built upon. Mm -hmm. And again, um, it was a great, the RAM was a great starting point for us from a frame and suspension perspective. So expand on that, and you're, ch you're changing a vehicle that is basically for hauling stuff to a vehicle that's hauling people more than stuff, Correct. right? And so that involves some changes. And Absolutely. So talk a bit about that, sure. would you? So one of, the, one of the technical enablers that allows you to turn a RAM system into a large UV segment. For instance, the first thing we did is we lowered we lowered the vehicle an inch. So we basically took the front spindle and raised the front spindle center line an inch and basically dropped it down. So again, uh, for a UV segment, entry egress in, in, in ride heights and things, so it's lower, better for dynamics. It's By a UV, it's you a, mean utility vehicle. Correct. It's a heavier vehicle, right. so from a ride and handling perspective, that's really good to get the center of gravity lower. It's really good from an entry egress perspective. So again, some of the elements, some of the suspension hard points on the front, we maintain some of the brackets, but but everything in the frame perspective and in the architecture is is really a derivative of the RAM system, but it's all brand new. Right. So this is a three-row vehicle. Correct. Uh, can be as many as eight passengers, I think, correct? Yes, sir. Uh, yes. And uh, with a large cargo area behind the third row. Talk a bit about packaging of people and stuff in, sure. in the vehicle. So again, um, it all starts foundationally with the frame. We have a very flat load floor. We've optimized cargo. We have best-in-class um, cargo volume behind the third row. We have best-in-class second and third row headroom and legroom. Um, 
our seven pass is standard on the Grand Wagoneer, which comes with a beautiful center, center console. And then on our Wagoneer, we have a standard bench seat for eight passenger. So again, very optimal for hauling people and hauling cargo. Uh, very spaciousness when you're in the second row. I think you may have heard Chris from our product design office today mention that he's six foot four and he can sit behind himself in the second row and sit behind he's himself. He's schizophrenic. In the third it's row. amazing how Ex he's able to do that. Exactly. And they are very comfortable seats, and every every seat in every row is a is a pretty darn good seat, isn't it? They're very comfortable. Um, the the back angle, the adjustability. Um, there's really no compromises in the seating. Often as you go further rearward in the vehicle, the seats um, dramatically change in comfort, but I would put our third row up against any vehicle. Um, it's, it's got a really, it's got the right chair height. It's got power reclining backrest. It's got very comfortable armrests, personalized USB ports. Our third row is very comfortable, right. very spacious. We're talking with Michael Meyer. He is chief engineer on the Wagoneer and Grand Wagoneer. Let's talk a bit about powertrain, talk about engines. You've got sure. a good engine story on both of these vehicles, don't you? Sure, great. So um, let's start with the Wagoneer. The Wagoneer comes standard with the legendary 5.7 liter Hemi. It's 392 horsepower. V8 engine. V8 I'm engine. Adding. Uh, naturally aspirated V8. Uh, it comes with our next generation e-torque system, which is actually a mild hybrid. And that's a 48 volt system that uh, offers up to an, an additional 130 pound feet of torque uh, when you're accelerating. It also comes standard with a very seamless stop-start system to optimize fuel economy, extended uh, DFSO, which is fuel shutoff, and um, so it's a very efficient so next-generation package. So you have cylinder package. deactivation, you have stop-start, and you also have mild hybrid. So there's a exactly. lot of things to help fuel economy and drivability. Talk a bit about uh, that additional uh, electric power from the uh, from the mild hybrid and how that really works. Sure, so again, uh, it helps from an acceleration perspective. It also, from a fuel economy perspective, we now, when you're coming into a start-stop condition, I mentioned the extended um, fuel shutoff. It allows you to shut the fuel off sooner because you can, you can optimize that electric torque to complete your stop, so you can shut the fuel off sooner. It's better for fuel economy, and then it also offers, depending on where the charge level of the battery is, we offer part of that system is regenerative braking. So when, you're, when your battery is depleted below a certain level, when you brake, the reverse torque from the MGU actually charges the battery. So it's a regenerative braking system as well. Yeah, so some, a lot of hybrid technology exactly. involved in the vehicle. And then you have the 6.4 Hemi on the Grand Wagoneer, correct? Yeah, so the 6.4 liter, uh, again, um, very precisely tuned for the Grand Wagoneer. It has a new intake manifold system, new exhaust manifolds, new air induction system, and just a dynamite sounding exhaust system that we're very proud of. So it's very, it's very refined, yet it says I'm a Hemi and I'm very powerful. Um, it also has cylinder deactivation. It has variable valve timing. Um, and it also has a feature auto hold, which the 5.7 does not have, but auto hold, um, as you probably know, allows you to pull up to a light. Um, when auto hold is activated, you can take your foot off the brake and you can relax and then the car will maintain its location until you accelerate. So auto hold is a feature that the 6.4 carries as well to the Grand Wagoneer. Very cool. Well, I was going to say, and it's a Jeep, so it has all this off-road capability. I'm not sure if I can really say it's a Jeep, but 
It, it does have, uh, you know, the seven-slot grill, so Correct. It's, it's certainly related to you. Talk a bit about the all-wheel drive systems because there's an array. Sure. So foundationally and fundamentally, our drive systems uh, obviously carry the Jeep heritage. We have three three drive systems. We have the Quadra Track 1, the Quadra Track 2, and the Quadra Drive 2. What differentiates the three systems um, is really the one-speed or two-speed T-case. Transfer um, case. Yes. And then in addition, um, our final drive ratio for our new all-independent rear suspension is a 321 with mechanical limited slip differential. That comes standard on a 5.7. On the Grand Wagoneer with the 6.4, the final drive ratio is a 3.92 with electronic limited slip differential. So that ELSD interacts with all of the drive modes and the select, the, the select train and the quadra lift to give you the ultimate in off-road performance. So we really have three systems. The, the two-speed transmissions um, obviously both offer four low with a 2.64 uh, gear multiplier. And they also offer a neutral button for flat towing. And with the two-speed T-case and the 392 rear diff, we have a best-in-class crawl ratio, which is 48 to 1. So again, capability-wise, um, we far exceed the competition with the capability of our vehicle off-road. Well, as you know, because you saw me do it, I just came off the off-road course here. And uh, talk a bit about the challenges of a vehicle of this size in terms of off-road because the capabilities are, are remarkable. So again, a big enabler for us is our quadra lift air suspension. As you experienced, you were in OR2. So our quadra lift air suspension, when, when you have the off-road package, the um, it allows you to raise the vehicle two inches, which gives you a full 10 inches of ground clearance. Um, for low, we have select speed control, which, which allows you to um, have constant low speed torque going both uphill and downhill. Our single speed T-case only offers hill descent control, but our select speed control offers that that constant torque to the wheels, both going uphill and both downhill, so it's, very capable. It's kind of like cruise control for off-road in a way. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So you can kind of set a speed and it maintains that Correct. speed for you. What, what excites you as the chief engineer on these two products? Uh, is there a specific feature? Just what gets you going? You think, wow, I, I really did something great here. Yeah. Or this team did something great yeah. here. You know, what really excites me, and I've, I've had the opportunity to be a part of these iconic vehicles in, in my 32 or 33-year career three times, and being a part of an iconic vehicle with a special group of people with a mission and, and doing something grand and, and reintroducing a brand and reintroducing something that was a part of the American heritage, that's really what excites me and I'm very proud of what we've been able to accomplish. As this was being developed, and I imagine you were probably with the program maybe from the start or certainly well along in the program, was it looked at as a, as a separate brand or sub-brand or was this going to be a, give me a little inside baseball on that. Yeah, so again, um, it's, it's always been built upon the heritage of the Jeep, but um, again, we really want to take the Wagoneer brand to a different level. Um, we think the customer base is different. We think that uh, there's opportunities there. So we really, um, again, we're, not, we're, we're never going to go away from our Jeep heritage with the vehicle, but it is, a, it is an extension of the Jeep brand. You know, uh, the, the General, Motor pro General Motors products in this segment are very good products. They're pretty new. What do you think are your competitive advantages versus those, those vehicles? Sure. 
Uh, clearly, uh, I would start with capability. Um, the capability far exceeds um, ride and handling, um, and I think our interior is are really the top three that I would say are really going to differentiate us from the Escalade. Well, Mike Allmeyer, thanks so much for being with us. We do appreciate it. Chief Engineer on Wagoneer and Grand Wagoneer. I'm uh, so excited for you. This is, this is so cool. Well, thank you very much, Jack. It was a pleasure, and we're really happy that you joined us here in New York to celebrate our big event, so thank you. Yeah, happy to do it. Stay with us, everybody. We'll be right back right here on America on the Road. Welcome back, everybody, to America on the Road. It is listener question time, our final segment of the week. And uh, we love to take your listener questions. We'd love to hear from you. So let us know your listener question. And Chris, what is the listener question this week on America on the Road? I have an interesting question. This one is from Wilmer in Fort Myers, Florida. He asks, do automakers make money building electric vehicles? He says his buddy believes that they all lose money, but he wants to know if there's anything more behind it than that. Well, there is a bunch more behind it than that. And uh, often they do lose money. I would say virtually all the time they're losing money right now. And a lot of times they have made electric cars and put electric cars in the market to meet particular regulations. Uh, It could be a state regulation of a number of zero emission vehicles that need to be sold in a state or something like that. So we have seen what are called compliance cars over and over again come into the market. And then when they've sold enough of them, they suddenly vanish. You can't can't get one. And uh, I remember uh, an executive from uh, what used to be FCA saying, don't buy our electric vehicles. I lose money on every one I sell. Uh, but at the same time, they had to sell them. I think that is changing. And certainly the goal going forward for big companies like Volkswagen and certainly, of course, for Tesla Motors and General Motors, which is putting a, a lot of its eggs in the EV basket, is to make tons of money from selling electric vehicles. But right now, I, I'm hard-pressed to think that they're making a, a lot of money. I, And I think that's our show for the week. So, Chris, thanks uh, for uh, sharing your insight with us. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for having me again, Jack. And thanks, everybody, for listening. I will say that if you guys that are listening want to see pictures of the cars that I'm testing and some even snarkier feedback on Instagram, you can follow me at Teague Drives. That's at T-E-A-G-U-E Drives on both Twitter and Instagram. So I'm on both places there. Uh, But otherwise, really appreciate you guys listening and look forward to next week. That's our show for this week. Please join us again next week right here for another edition of America on the Road.